0: Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have the honor of speaking to the no-gi jiu-jitsu phenom, William Tackett. William is a 21-year-old black belt under Rodrigo Cabral, where he teaches and trains at Brazilian Fight Factory in Austin, Texas. William has competed against the best BJJ athletes in the world, racking up wins against Andrew Wiltsey, Tex Johnson, John Combs, Husamar Palhares, Dante Leon, and many more. He recently took gold at what was arguably the toughest and greatest ADCC trials to date, an incredible feat. William and the Tackett brothers are part of this new breed of young jiu-jitsu practitioners who were raised with a dearth of modern jiu-jitsu data, full-time practice, and most importantly, an incredibly deep assimilation of the art. An amazing thing about William is that he's just getting better and better. In the episode, we talk about his unique upbringing, which contributed to his success, his ideas on recovery and training specifics. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can prove the show at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt. Consider becoming a patron at that same link. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt and check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your swag at teespring.com forward slash forever-white-belt. If you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. they are amazing instructors, and everyone there are great people. Also, make sure to mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you William Tackett. William, welcome to the show, man.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me.
0: You are a black belt under the legendary Rodrigo
1: Cabral, right? Yes, sir. Yes, I got my black belt in... um, I think March of last year.
0: Rodrigo's a beast, man. Watching like your videos and stuff too. I mean, my God, he's like yeah, a he's uh...
1: so good. He's so good. He's literally like a, a mobile tank, like a tank. That can <laughs> just like <laughs>
0: I'm glad you can say that. I was gonna say he's like a walking tree trunk or something like that. It's it's incredible.
1: Well, his nickname is Brugatu, which is um, some cartoon in Brazil. It's basically <laughs> the Flintstones in <laughs> Brazil. It's like okay. a caveman. So like, wow. yeah, <laughs> kind of describes itself there.
0: Yeah, he looks uh, impossible to move. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, he feels like um, an unstoppable force and an immovable object at the same time.
0: (laughs) You're training, obviously, out of a Brazilian fight factory in Austin, Texas. We like to think of you as a California boy because technically you were born in California, (laughs) even though you Mm -hmm. are in Texas. You're a Texas boy. Okay, I'll give him that. Tell me about uh, BFF. I love that acronym, by the way, too. Uh, (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's great. Um, it's the best gym in my opinion that I've, uh, ever trained at. I've trained at a lot of gyms over the years, you know, um, multiple at Bajas when I was a kid, gyms all across Austin. You know, Mike, I don't, don't want to like signal out any gyms to like compare, but like I've been to a lot of gyms in Austin sure. and, um, you know, all over. And I really, really enjoy our gym. It's the reason why I've stuck with it and, um, you know, haven't switched. It's just, it's a, it's in my opinion, the best overall, like family atmosphere, like competitive atmosphere, just fun and engaging. And then like, we got a cool facility now too, because we just moved locations. So it's really everything that I can want. So I, I love it.
0: So in the, the videos, a lot of the videos that I see at BFF, a lot of the guys kind of look like you in a way in terms of just body types. And, and I mean, sure, there's some, some variation in terms of height and maybe some age things, but it looks like you have a great crew in terms of like training partners. I'm curious if those videos are like, are they competition class videos, you know, typically a BFF or, or is that like a, your typical sort of class adult class there?
1: Well, it depends on like, uh, cause we post a lot of videos. We'll post videos yeah. of like just on our stories or like I have my YouTube that I post videos on. So it's kind of just like uh, hodgepodge of a bunch of different classes. But, um, for the most part, if you see us kind of going harder, you see like Andrew and me and other people mm-hmm. like compete like rolling, then that's most of the time that's the advanced class, but we'll compete. We'll, we'll train and, uh, compete with all the guys in the be in our class too. So we, um, we're not, I've heard some gyms and, um, I don't want to point people out again to compare, but I've heard that some gyms don't have the higher ranks, like roll with the lower ranks much at all. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, I've, I trained with this guy, but yeah, I've never rolled with it. Like, I, I try to make a point to roll with pretty much everyone at least once, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. going to roll with the white belt every day or like a, a, the same white belt every day, just cause I need good training too. But I try to make a point to train with everyone. So um, we're, we're normally like training with everyone and it could be from anyone in the classes.
0: And you are listed as one of the instructors there, right? It's Cody as well <laughs> as a handful of other individuals.
1: Yes, sir. My uh, middle brother Andrew Cody Andrew, is too. also teaching. Mm-hmm. We have Tiffany; Gosh. she's a purple belt world champion. She teaches and works behind the desk. We have a brown belt instructor that helps with the name Davis Cole, and then I had Professor Rodrigo Cabral.
0: And then you guys have a kids offering, obviously, right? In the whole array, mm-hmm. typical. Yeah,
1: um, my youngest brother Caleb helps assist the kids' classes along with Andrew, my other brother, and um Tiffany and Davis, and they have a few other instructors that help out, but. Um, it's a really good kids program also.
0: So let's talk, and now you're bringing up the family a little bit. Let's talk about those siblings, Caleb and Andrew. Very interesting. So if you guys don't know the Tackett family, my God, I mean, your guys' jujitsu accomplishments, is it's really something to behold. Andrew's very interesting in that he's, you know, you're all different in a way. I mean, similar, but different. Andrew reminds <laughs> me a bit of like a, a I don't know, like a Braulio, like a steamer kind of thing. He's like a long, very sort of movement oriented, very exciting, fun to watch jiu practitioner. And then I remember you mentioning something about Caleb. Caleb's 14 and he seems really strong and kind of a top heavy sort of wrestling typers. Forgive me if, if I'm not uh, characterizing it correctly, but can you expand on those two?
1: Yeah. I mean, I 100% agree. Andrew's a very movement-based a jiu-jitsu guy he moves a lot he tries to create scrambles he um tries to tire opponent out pretty much and he loves like that style when it comes to grappling and then caleb's fairly like the opposite he likes to pick people up slam them on the ground and, and you know pass their guard and stuff like that like he's he's not as um i guess well-rounded in the sense of he doesn't love to like play guard or go for leg locks I, I mean he can do some of that stuff too but he's you know he's still really young so he's learning but um, he, for her, the most part, he loves like takedowns and passing and uh, Andrew is just all over the place. So Andrew is very, very well-rounded, loves to do takedowns, loves to play guard. He's great at leg locks, outstanding leg lock defense and loves to take the back. He's all over the place.
0: So then this touches upon game. So where do you fall in that spectrum? When I when I watch a lot of your game, it's not this big, flashy, giant movement, cartwheels kind of stuff. I know you can do all of that stuff, but it's this very sort of small, technical, advancing position type of approach, often from bottom, and you just get wins after wins after wins. It It just pays off dividends. Would that be a fair characteristic?
1: Yeah, I think that My game is, or at least everything that I've been about since I've started, it's always been like about efficiency. So I find that basics are really, really efficient and don't require a whole lot of uh, strength or athletic ability or dynamics, to where it's just, you know, do the moves, make sure you don't miss any details, and it works. And um, someone like Hodger Gracie is someone that I really, I watched a lot of when I was a kid, although we don't have similar body types. He was able to go out there and do literally a Soto gari's and cross chokes to everyone, which are like stuff you warn as a day one white belt. And he was um, able to do that to everyone, submit 10 out of 10 people to win double gold at the world championships. Like, you know, he is just to that next level of being able to be maximum efficiency in all of his matches. So I've always tried to at least take the most efficient route. And although like some of my game might look a little bit intricate, like some leg locks or like some uh, weird back takes and body lock passing. But for the most part, I find that it's the most efficient way to beat that particular person. So I just try to keep it simple and sometimes it's a little bit more complicated, but for the most part, I like uh, simplicity.
0: Obviously at your level, there's, (laughs) there's very little gaps and holes. Where do you feel you would like to improve upon or you wish you were better at?
1: Well, um, I'm going to continue to try to get better at wrestling because, you know, as you, everyone may know, I'm competing at the adCC in September, so mm-hmm. um, I just won the trials. The trials is like, in order to win the trials or the world championships, even to win a match, you have to have good wrestling because um, for the most part, it favors the wrestler. You know, you have the first period of the match where it's pr- where it's no points, so you can pull and do whatever. But as soon as it hits the points period of the match, which in the trials is after three minutes for the first few rounds in the finals it's after four and then the world championships first few rounds it's after five minutes you hit the points period and then finals it's 10 but um, after you finish that first period of point of no points then it goes into points and when it's points you can't pull guard so you have to wrestle and um, a lot of the things that come from your back like sweeps and such you don't get as rewarded as much as you would for takedowns like if you take someone down to side control you get four points instead of two because you get the, technically the guard pass and the takedown. And then also it's just in that rule set, especially Nogi, it's just easier to be able to play on top and maintain that lead if you're able to get a takedown. So I'm going to continue to try to work those takedowns. I think that that's going to be a big wrap to success for me at ADCC if I can out wrestle everyone. I think that I don't see anyone submitting me in that division, although that, you know anything can happen, right? But I'm fairly confident in my submission defense. I think I'm pretty well-rounded as far as like, I'm not going to get leg locked like 10 out of 10 times, right? I think I can defend most leg locks. Um, I think I can defend the guard passes and keep from getting swept. So if I can just out-wrestle everyone, I think that I can, you know, take home the win. So I have to get really good at wrestling. So I'm going to improve my wrestling a lot. And um, the the rules are something that's really important. So I'm going to be really trying to figure out and um, develop skill and learning how to score properly and prevent getting scored in the ADCC rules because the ADCC rules are so unique. There's no other rule set that's really like it. And the scoring mm-hmm. criteria can also kind of be in a little bit of a gray area if you don't know the rules. But if, as soon as you know the rules, you can figure out, oh, okay, this is not a gray area. There's, cl- there's a clear line here, but it's kind of hard to see if you don't know the rules.
0: Right. So you So you really are strategizing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, sir.
0: So, did you realize? I mean, the ADCC trials is going to be as amazing as it as it was. Granted, your your victory is mind blowing and amazing, and we were all cheering when you when it happened. It was awesome to Thank see. You. Thank you. But um, it w- the whole event itself was so special, and all of the competitors were just amazing, and the performances were incredible. Did you get a sense of that when you were there?
1: Yeah, I mean the first trials of technically this season, I guess the November trials was kind of a real eye opener to how um, tough this division, these divisions are going to be, especially the how tough the West Coast was going to be. I think that there has been a a huge leap in skill level and just like numbers, like the amount of athletes signing up compared to the last trials that I did. So the last trials I did was the 2019 West Coast trials. It was early 2019, and it's been a long time since then. So it's you know the sport has grown a whole lot. And uh, I think that just when I did the East Coast this last November, it was a real eye-opener to, wow, it's Things, a lot of things have changed. And you can really feel the, especially competing out there, but even just watching the stands, you can just mm-hmm. feel like the elevated skill level. It feels like the, the actual ADCC, at least the trials did for me, like competing at the East Coast and West Coast, they felt just as deep talent pool as the last 2019 ADCCs. And that's, that's, I mean, that's a big, bold claim, but I think a lot of the competitors and even Mr. Mo, the head organizer, would agree with me. Like Cade Rotolo, he won the East Coast Trials. I think that Cade could have won. Like, if you took Cade right now, Cade's size and his scale up right now, bounced him back into 2019, he probably could have won or had a great chance to. Definitely would have yeah. had a high seed. So mm-hmm. I think that the trials is now just elevated so much more, and you can really feel it being in that atmosphere, especially the West Coast. The West Coast was even crazier because you had all the lights and the walkouts, and you had so many competitors. You know, two mm-hmm. hundred plus competitors in one division. So it was, it was mm-hmm. pretty insane.
0: That's amazing that you even recognize the. We've mentioned this several times on the show. It seems like there's been a hockey stick improvement in terms of talent in, in the young talent, especially, you know, just in terms of skill set. And I think this last trials did illustrate that, especially the West Coast trials. I'll, I'll be biased here. And that you saw it being a 20 year old competitor. You're right in that pocket in the middle of the storm. It's uh, incredible to see you come out top. Now, can you highlight some of those moments, some of the people that you were competing against or some of the people that you witnessed in terms of if you were like, oh, wow, I didn't know this guy did this or this guy felt super strong or were there any sort of moments like that when you were mid competition, let's say that you were just like, you identified some of these sort of highlights.
1: Yeah. I think that overall I was pretty prepared with understanding and realizing who I was facing and how tough of the challenge it was going to be. So I don't think I was surprised too, too much by the people that I faced, but that being said, I had a ton of matches. So uh, my first match of day one and I, and forgive me, I forget his name. Really, really tough though. He submitted Michael. Sal- I don't know if he submitted, but he definitely beat Michael Salazar pretty significantly. Michael Salazar is a, another Texas guy. I think that Michael might be out in um, California now training with Keenan, but he definitely was a Texas guy. Grew up around the same time frame, competitive wise, as like Cody and I. And he beat Michael first round easily. And I was like, "Whoa, okay, this guy's gonna be good." So then we fought first round of the second of the second day, and yeah, it was tough, really, really tough. I expected to go out there and maybe get like an early lay lock finish because um mm. you know I just assumed that maybe that would be a, a hole or a gap. But it took me a while to submit him to like the last ten seconds or something of the match. And it was um by rear naked choke. So he was really, really tough. And I think that there was a ton of people like that throughout the entire division that were really surprising a lot of people. For instance, the guy that Chris Wojcik, the guy that beat Cody Steele first round, my teammate, he beat a ton of really good guys. He beat Kieran uh, Kuczyk also in first or second round of day two. He beat mm-hmm. a bunch of really good guys and then faced me in the semifinals. So he was another dude that came out of the middle of nowhere and now is doing really well. He just beat Gabriel Meda at a, um, a recent tournament like last legit. weekend or something. Yeah, legit. yeah, mm-hmm. So, so good. So there's just so many of those, those guys that popped up that really um, left their stable and like their stamp on the event.
0: It seems like there's this unspoken professional division, if you will. Do you, do you think we need a professional track versus amateur track?
1: I think that it's fine, to be honest. I think it's mm. actually cooler where anyone can sign up for the trials than you have to qualify for the trials. Like I, I think that that would be kind of silly. So for the trials, I think it's great. I think it's great that anyone can do it. Now, I do think that they probably should change something where high seeds of people that are expected to win don't have to have as many matches with people that Mm. no one knows. Like, for instance, going into this past weekend, I think that people like Kieran and Cody and me and guys like that place at the last trials and did really well should probably not have to fight till like day two or something and Mm -hmm. then have like five fights day two or something. And then like the other guys like Chris, guys that came out of nowhere would probably have to fight like a few fights on day one before they made it to day two. So I think that'd be a good way to split it up to where, Mm -hmm. man, I have to do 12 matches this weekend. You know, instead you'd have to do like five because you're the favorite and everyone else like, you know, That way someone that has to really prove themselves has to win 12 if they want to win the whole thing. I think that that'd be a pretty good way to go about that. But I don't know. There's so many different uh, routes to figuring that out. But I do like the idea that anyone can sign up because I think that's what the essence of ADCC trials is, and it's always mm. been to the people that come out of nowhere and stars are born. I think that my first major performance was when I did well and took second at the 2019 West Coast Trials when I lost to yeah. John Combs in the finals. Mm. Uh, I think that that was like my first performance where people were like, "Oh wow, Williams looked pretty legit. You know, he's not like great, great yet, or he would have won, but he's you know he's pretty good. Got to keep my eye out for him." I think trials does that for a lot of people, and I think that you kind of take away from that if you don't allow everyone to sign up. So I, I like the fact that they allow everyone to sign up, and then also when you win it, it just is that much sweeter because you have to beat so many people.
0: And we do typically see the the best sort of filter to the top. A lot of sometimes is the repetitive names. I love your idea though of letting the, the well-known competitors take a whatever it may be, some sort of gap in, in some sort of way. It is kind of cool to, to have that sort of NFL walk-on guy potential, right?
1: Yeah, I like it. I think it's interesting from a fan standpoint. Like I cannot wait to the next trial's and I don't know wow. if this is actually how it's going to work. <laughs> You're but serious.
0: Mo, my God. Yeah, after all that, Mo, my goodness.
1: Well, uh, I don't know if this is like a definite or not, but Mo said, Mo and Seth both said that whoever wins this trials, this past West Coast, since there was so many people, it's the biggest trial in history. They don't have to do trials anymore. So, sense. since I want it, sense. hopefully, I don't know if it's going to work out, but hopefully, I don't have to do trials ever again. <laughs> so, I can just like get qualification by uh, invite. But if that's the case, I can't wait for next trials because I'll get to watch as a fan. Like, I get to sit on the edge of the mat or sit at my house, depending on where I'll be at. I'll probably be there coaching because of my teammates and such, mm-hmm. my brothers. Mm-hmm. But being there and being able to look at it from a fan standpoint, not have to worry about getting nervous, being able to sit there and watch guys like Chris Wojciech upset the whole division or watch matches like Andrew versus Damien and not have to worry about like warming up while I'm watching and such like that. So I'm excited for the next one.
0: So you are coaching then all the time, right? I mean, you've been doing this since you were eight, right? So you've been competing forever. So you have plenty of experience coaching as well.
1: Yeah. I, um, I originally started coaching the kids class when I was about about 14 years old. I started coaching like the kids class, helping out with like the four to six year olds. Then after that, I started, uh, when I got my blue belt, I started running the teens competition class at my previous gym, which was um, 14 to 16 year old teens. And I was running that class. Mm-hmm. I and mean, even though I was just about the same age, I was I was running it because you know I had a ton of competition ex- experience. By that point in time, I was already competing, like sometimes multiple times a month, you know, multiple times a year. And I've been doing that for years now. So I've been teaching teens since then. And I started teaching adult classes about maybe I was about 17 or 18 so I've been teaching now adult classes for you know three years, three, four years now. And yeah, I love teaching. I think it's great. I think there's a really cool side of it that people don't understand that like I learn a lot from teaching and I don't think people realize that. For instance, if I want to show you a scissor sweep, something simple, like what I would show a white belt first day from the closed guard. Uh, yeah, I can do a scissor sweep you know, all the time in training, but like, okay, wait, how am I going to actually explain it to someone? And let's say I'm not teaching someone that is completely incapable physically, like very non-athletic and non-coordinated. All right, how am I going to simplify this and give them the right details? They can actually finish this. Okay, now I have to think about it a little bit more, and then now I can kind of like discover some new ways to actually do it because I'm having to explain it and dumb it down a little bit. So I think that teaching really helps you understand the move better as a as a performer. Not only as a coach, but you understand how to actually do the move a little bit better by just coaching it. So I enjoy teaching. I think I learn a lot from it, and um, I get a lot of joy out of like helping someone go from like point A to point B and uh, seeing someone improve. You know, making a little bit of a difference.
0: So then, how do you interact, uh, let's say, at a competition with a student when you are wearing that different hat, that coaching hat? Does it depend on the student, or are you hollering on the side there? Or how's the pre-tournament talk, or or that? How does that working?
1: I think that is uh, dependent on the student. I think everyone's different, and I think that's why it's important to be in a, a coach that's engaged in the environment constantly. So, you know, if you only see this guy once every few weeks or something, and you're never really like at class constantly coaching him or constantly talking with him on the mat and helping him out, you don't really know or understand how he thinks. And it's going to be tough to kind of understand how to coach him. Now, for instance, if you're really, really incorporated in the class and constantly talking with people and helping them before and after and with position or even coaching them during roles, then now you kind of understand how each one of your students think. And for example, there's a guy at our gym named Matt Copra. He's actually actually competing tonight on Thursday night jiu-jitsu you guys can check it I think they do it on YouTube but he's a really really good competitor he's a judo black belt he's a purple belt he'll probably get in his brown belt here soon you know he went three rounds deep at the ADCC trials like he's tough wow. but Matt will believe anything you say like even over, right? So if I go up to him I'm like, hey man, this is gonna be a tough match. Then he's gonna oh he get super nervous because mm, he, he he's gonna believe exactly what I'm gonna say. But if I go up mm. to him I'm like Matt, you got this. Like this guy's really good, but you're better. Go get it. Then mm. okay, all right, and go out there and i do my thing. Someone like that, a lot of positive reinforcement. Tell them how mm. good they are. They need to hear you say that in order to believe it that, that day and that time. Then someone like Andrew, my brother, I would say very little to him. I would just be like, All right, Andrew, let's go, let's do this. He already knows what to do. He's had so much experience. He doesn't really care what other people are saying. I could tell Andrew if you're going to lose this match and he wouldn't even care. He probably would be like, "Ah, screw you. And then go out there and win the match, you know? So you have to know who to talk to, to, who to leave alone. Some people get really nervous and don't even want to hear anything. Like maybe my youngest brother, Caleb, he likes to put in his earphones and just go. If you make him take out his earphone and get out of the zone, he's like... Let me get in my zone. You know, he doesn't mm. want to be told what to do or, or like coached before the match. You know, so you got to know who you're dealing with and how to deal with them. I think the best way to do that is just make sure that you're constantly engaged in class and um, you know your students well.
0: How does that apply to you when you're competing in your coach?
1: For me, I'm uh I don't get super nervous. I've um learned now to not get as nervous, but I used to get really, really, really nervous <laughs> before mm. I competed. And um I think that it's come with just like getting reps in basically to where now I'm I'm just used to doing it and it's not as bad. But I used to be on Team Hibera Jiu Jitsu. And Salo Hibera said one time at his seminar, how do you not get nervous? Sal? I get so nervous when I compete. You have multiple world titles, you're, you probably don't get nervous, right? And he's like, no, I get nervous. He said, if you're not nervous, you're not human. And then that kind of helped me a lot with that realization, understanding, okay, all right, I, I know I'm going to get nervous. I know that guy's nervous. It's just part of it. Let's just deal with it. Now, I don't like to be chatted with on like strategy and like, oh, what are you going to do to this guy? Like, that's like my not my pet peeve, but it really bugs me when someone comes up to me, maybe one of my teammates, or like honestly, even my parents. And I love my parents to death, but even if my parents come up to me like. So what, what's the plan? What are you gonna do? Like I hate mm-hmm. that because I already know what I'm gonna do, and I want to just get in the zone and just get focused. And then when I have to like run back through the match, that's when I start getting like those nerves start building back up because I'm like reliving the match. Mm-hmm. I already know what I'm gonna do. I don't want to like relive it. I like to visualize what's like the end goal. I don't like to visualize like the route to getting there. So I don't like to be like, oh, I'm gonna, gonna double like this guy. Let's go. I'm double like him. I'm double like I'm double like repeating that in my head before the match. And I like to just visualize me getting my hand raised and you know repeating to myself, you're better than this guy. You're to win this match. You've worked harder than him, such like that. And visualizing the end goal, because then I'm not like limiting myself to one option. If you're just like going out there, I'm a double legged student, I'm going to go out here, double leg and arm bar, and you're just running that like route of success through your head, then now that's pretty much all you're going to look for. And you're going to miss out on other things, or at least that's what happens in my shoes. So instead, I just try to visualize the end goal and then let like my jiu-jitsu and things I've trained just kind of go out there and speak for itself versus like trying to force something. So when people come up to me, like, oh, what's the plan? Then I'm like, "Ah." it's kind of like messing up my little rhythm so Hmm. for the most part i like to just put in my headphones i like to talk about things that are not regarding the match now i like to talk about jujitsu just kind of stay in the zone maybe about one of my previous matches or one of my teammates matches or a match that was happening on the tournament like for adcc example we saw aj versus john cones really really cool match i was watching that match while i'm warming up i'm watching it reason why is because it's kind of getting my mind off my match but it's keeping me in the zone of okay competing like Mm -hmm. jujitsu jujitsu but i'm not like in the state where i'm getting nervous or trying to think about what's going to happen because that's when I start like, oh, it's you know, and getting kind of caught up.
0: Thinking about some of your previous matches, do you go over those and especially if they're the near term previous match and pick over them and then look for ways to iterate?
1: I study a lot of film. So I, I watch a lot of matches. I think I said this just recently talking about ADCC I was talking with Mr. Mo I think I, I've watched I think about every I think I've watched every match that's ever happened in ADCC and that's just because I love studying and I think that it's an important part of Jiu Jitsu and I think that watching them multiple times really helps too because you maybe miss something I'll normally like screen record a match and have it in my camera roll and then you know you have like, the little scroll button in the bottom of the iPhone I'll watch it and then when I see something I just like scroll back and I'll just like rewatch that and like figure out what happened oh he grabbed here okay and then I'll like let the match play but I I love watching matches. I think that watching matches is super important. I don't watch a whole lot. Like, I've heard people like Koabate, I've heard like the Mendez brothers, they'll be like studying his previous matches that day before he goes into his next match. And I Mm. don't like that too much for like my personal self. And not a whole lot of reasoning behind it other than I just like to stay focused on, like I said, the the end result, like what's going to happen next. Not Mm. like, like I said, not the actual match. Like, I'm not focusing on, you know, okay, I'm going to go out there and pull guard and leg lock. I'm not focused on like getting my hand raised just want to keep focused on that and then by like watching a previous match kind of takes my mind off that and about what i did and maybe like i start celebrating a little bit early i'm like oh i got a cool win sweet sweet and i'm not really focused on the next match and rewatching that kind of gets me excited about my previous win and not so excited about what's about to happen. So I try to stay focused on what's going to happen. But I do watch my matches a lot, just not while I'm competing. Yeah, just not as much. But I love watching matches. I think it's really important. During like like my training camps, I'll set aside like a certain time frame during the day that I'm like, okay, I watch matches at this time. Like 1 to 2 p.m., I'm watching matches. Or um, you know, outside of training camp, I just kind of do it whenever. But during my training camp, I try to make it a regimen to where I'm like watching matches or even instructional sometimes. Um, I love watching rolling footage. So I'll, I like record my, my rolls inside the gym with like a tripod or something. Or if I have someone to record for me, it's a little bit better. But uh, I'll just set up my phone and then record my rounds and then just rewatch them. I think that's really good for like improving skill as well.
0: You segue us perfectly into your YouTube channel, which uh, a lot of your content is just amazing, by the way. Thank you for uh, for creating all that. But your rolling footage and your commentary on top of it, it's very educational. I, h- I highly recommend everyone go check out William's YouTube channel and and those narrated roles. You thank can you. learn thank a you.
1: lot from it.
0: How did that come about? And boy, what a skill not only uh, visualize, but capture that wonderful footage, but to articulate exactly what's going on.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, by the way. Um, I love doing the videos, and it's it's more something that I really get joy out of. You know, I'm just happy that I get to share it with you guys. But I originally started with the idea was one of my, uh, my friends at the gym. He was like, hey man, I have a great idea. Look at someone like Daniel Cormier or someone along that lines that was a fighter in some arena or like a, or a professional in some area. And then now like went into that same ar- arena, but just like in a different little section. Like Daniel Cormier was, you know, UFC champion, one of the greatest of all time. Now he's a commentator, but he's still involved and he's still relevant. Now you look at someone like, Cain Velasquez, maybe not a great example because he's going through some stuff right now, but Cain Velasquez was a UFC champion as well, but not really relevant right now because he doesn't have any foot in the door of the sport at all right? So I was like, okay, what's some way I can refine my skills in a way that would keep me in the sport when I'm no longer competing? So I was like, okay, well, commentary, right? That's a great way to have your foot in the door or teaching. Like one of those two things, look at Lachlan Giles, for example, he doesn't compete really at all anymore. He's doing ADCC, but last time he competed was 2019 ADCC. So, you know, three years ago and he stayed super relevant. You ask anyone, like pretty much a day one white belt who Lachlan is, they'll know. The reason being is because he has like a really big YouTube following. Now he's Starting his own website and he has his own teaching content. So the fact that he like teaches and that really keeps him relevant. And people look at him as a teacher, and then they look, oh yeah, he's a competitor too. He's really really good. Someone like Daniel Cormier, yeah, he's a commentator, but he's also one of the greatest of all time in MMA. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start some commentary. Start to try to refine my speaking skills and understanding how to break down matches and bring some value to the table other than competing. That way, whenever I you know decide to stop competing or you know God forbid I get injured and I can't compete anymore, I'll still be able to be involved in the sport and have an influence.
0: That's amazing, man, to have that foresight. So you obviously have long-term plans.
1: Yes, sir. Like long-term plans or just to stay in the sport and continue to just to enjoy jujitsu. I love jujitsu so much. You know, I've been in, I mean, you just repeated this earlier, but I've been in jiu-jitsu since I was eight years old. In 2009, I started pretty early in the Texas slash Austin, especially Austin days. We were like, oh, we were the second, I think, second or third gym in Austin that opened up as the gym that I started at. So really, really fresh in Austin. Now there's gyms all around the corner, you know, but there was only two or three gyms in Austin. There was Sean Coopers, there was William Bandrews, and there might have been Humaita. I'm not sure if Humaita was here or not, but there was Sean Cooper MMA here in Austin and there was uh, William Bandry's And for anyone, like not a lot of people know those gyms, not a very popular, too popular gyms, but in the Austin area, those are OG gyms. And, um, I've been in the game for a long, long time and, and it's been really, really cool the whole time. So I, I just enjoyed it.
0: What is the BJJ pyramid method?
1: Yeah, so that is a method that I use to get better at jujitsu. So, like an idea or like a mental graph that you can use, like on how to judge your training partners and know what moves to use on them. So, think of like a pyramid, right? A little triangle. A pyramid has like levels that it's kind of built like steps almost. And um, you got to think of your training partners in that same way, or at least like that's a way you can. And I wouldn't say think of it as belt ranks either, because sometimes white belts are really tough. You know, sometimes you get the D1 wrestler that comes in at the white <laughs> yeah. belt and he squashes you and you're a brown belt <laughs> or something, you know. So you can't think of it as belt levels. It's people that you find are, give you trouble, either skill level wise, physically, something. It could be just bigger, faster, have better cardio, but people that give you problems, right? The people that give you problems are more towards the top and the people that you can beat all the time are more towards the bottom. Now, I, the way that you can kind of break that down is people that you can beat like any given day, the guys that are just terrible. They're not even maybe terrible, just like in comparison to you. If you're a day one, if you're a new white belt, it could be people that just are walking through the door. People that are completely new and no know jujitsu. Right. That might Damn be a no level tools. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, or if you're in a situation where you're a black belt, maybe that's even blue belts or purple belts—people that are just right there, the people that just are easy for you to beat, and you can pretty much do anything on you can stunt on, right? And then that next level, guys, that okay, yeah, they're good, but I can beat them. Like maybe I can't do every move in the jujitsu rule book on them, but I can do most of it, right? I can do like pretty much anything. But they give me so much trouble. They give me like proper reaction and decent defense. And then there's the guys that are right about your skill level. You have to be really on par to beat them. You got to be taking it serious. If you're having a bad day, they'll catch you. But for the most part, you're better than them and you beat them more than they more often than they beat you, right? And then the next level right below the top is the guys that are your skill level. Those are the guys that give you trouble. You go back and forth with. Maybe they're a little bit ahead of you, but you catch them here and there. You know, you consider yourself right about their skill level or even not even their skill level. Maybe like they're just really, really tough, like mentally, physically. They're long, strong, athletic, and you know, they just always catch up to you, right? And then above that, those are the people that are a lot better than you or slightly or whatever. Those, that's the people above you, the people you're trying to catch or chase mm-hmm. down. Now, when you try a new move and you're wanting to, because prog- that's how you pro- you progress, right? You try something new and you get good at it. Now you added a new tool to your, your shed and now you're better. So when you're trying a new move, let's say for example, you're, you just bought a new DVD on BJJ Fanatics or something, and you're trying to try out these new moves, but who does everyone try them on? Everyone in class, (laughs) you try to hit the move on everyone in class. And then, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you get discouraged and then you stop trying it. Now that's where people don't get better because they're not trying to incorporate the move and make it to where no matter what, I get to get better at it. Now, a way for you to figure that out is use that move on level one in order to climb the pyramid. You got to start at the bottom. So Mm -hmm. hit that move on that level one, whatever that may look like for you. That could be day one white belt. So that could be tough, tough purple belts that you're just better than, you know, but beat those guys get that move on them, complete a few reps, and then work your way up. Now, once you work your way up to level two, beat those guys, hit the move on them, make sure you complete it, then work your way up. And then all the way to the top. Once you're able to meet, it's your skill level, you've added it to your game, right? And then now you can start trying to hit on the next guys, but you don't ever want to try something new on the people that are at the top of the pyramid, right? If you immediately try and hear it all the time, like people are like, yeah, man, I was rolling with Andrew the other day, like my brother, Andrew. I was wrong with Andrew the other day and I tried that move you, you showed in class. It didn't even work. You shut it down. I'm like, no wonder, man, you're not good at it yet. You got to try to get <laughs> reps on it first. You know, the move works or I wouldn't show it. Like I use it all the time. It works. You just got to do it right in order to do it right. You got to know the proper reaction. how to deal with the reactions. You have to know how to incorporate the steps in the right order and timing and pressure and all that other stuff. And that comes with getting solid reps in. Now, what do you do against those guys at the top? Because if they're better than you, you're probably not even gonna hit the, the new move on them, even when you get up to that level, right? You hit your best moves against those guys. The guys that are better than you at the top of the pyramid, those are the people that are meant to like refine your best moves. Like, for example, if you're a half guard player, you like playing half guard and over-underpasses, then only do that against the guys that are better than you. You're not gonna get any better using those half guard and over-underpasses on the guys that are down here, the lower part of the pyramid. It doesn't make any sense. You're just not gonna get better at those those moves by hitting the same amount of reps on the same skill level. You need to work those moves on the guys that are better than you. Once you complete those moves on them, then now you're getting better, right? The guys that are lower, lower ranked than you, those are meant for the moves that you don't quite know yet. So that's the, the kind of my take on how I get better and how I approach my training. And I call it just the BGJ pyramid method.
0: It's a really um, effective mental model in a way too. And and you do have a great video on it. Again, go check out (laughs) William's YouTube Mm -hmm. channel on on the whole idea. But what's also great about it too is that it also allows someone to filter out things, right? Like um, something that is just not realistic, perhaps they picked up somewhere, you know? And you take it up the pyramid and it just gets stuck at this one place. It just doesn't make it up to even the mid-tier or something like that. You're like, okay, maybe this isn't legit or not for me or something like that. Yeah,
1: a lot of times it's just not legit. If you're not learning... Maybe okay. Now, this is a problem that you're going to face if you don't train at like a world-class gym, right? So if you don't train at a place that like, you know, you have world-class competitors and guys to compete at like a high level, you're going to get shown some stuff that's sometimes like not going to work. It just just happens, right? The reason why they're showing it is because they use it, but they're not world-class. So they haven't been able to try and test that at like a high level. So where are they mostly hitting it on? They're mostly doing it on their students, which Mm -hmm. are less skill level than them. So that's where it's going to work for you. It's going to work against like people that you're just better than. But once you get up to a certain level, it's just going to probably stop working sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes moves just don't work past a certain skill level. Like I remember getting showed some moves from like one of my first coaches and I would just be like, Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. I am gonna use that all the time. And Mm -hmm. I'd never really be able to hit it in training. Sometimes I would, but sometimes I wouldn't. And now, I look back, I'm like, yeah, it just wasn't legit. Or maybe there was just a huge gap in the position that wasn't shown, like how you didn't have head position. Like for example, knee slice pass. A lot of people show knee slice pass, no gi the same way you would in the gi. They're completely two different moves. gi versus no gi. In the gi, you can do it with a cross collar grip, a sleeve grip with your head high and shoot your hips forward and slide through as you pick up on the collar and the sleeve. Nogi is completely opposite. You have to keep your head down low, not on the far side of the head because you get swept. You have to keep it underneath their chin and gluing their head back to the mat. And you have to have an underhook. If you don't have an underhook, you don't get the pass. And a lot of people teach Nogi, like I've seen, I've literally seen people teach Nogi pass, knee slice pass with a collar tie and a elbow grip, the same way you would kind of in the gi. And they slide and the person gets the underhook and gets out. I've been taught a knee slice that way. And it's not because like the person was terrible jujitsu or whatnot. They just hadn't been able to test it against guys that are super high level to realize that it's not super legit. Of course, it's a move it can work. It's just not like super refined. So sometimes well, if you don't train it like a super high level gym, it's okay. They have a lot of things that they can show you correctly. And at least in today's day and age, you can have a lot of access to high level moves online, but there's some moves that you're going to have to run through that pyramid and then just accept that are just not legit. Or you need to learn a few additional steps or make a few adjustments to make them further actually legit to move on because i've done mm. some like silly stuff like bulldog chokes that are considered like fake jujitsu, and like or like headlocks and stuff that don't mm. work but like you can make them to where they're legit for example josh barnett submitted dean lister with literally a headlock and before everyone was like oh that's not jujitsu. that's not real stuff that's fake and all that other stuff and then dean lister hadn't been subbed in like 18 years or something like that just got subbed by a headlock like there's ways that you can make things work you might just not be getting it shown correctly you know
0: now you bring up the Gi. It's interesting because I, I searched and searched. I couldn't find any footage of you in the Gi. Can you tell me your experience with the Gi and your relationship with the Gi?
1: Yeah. So I competed in the Gi a lot when I was a kid and a lot through juvenile. So I actually competed and I won the kids' Pan Ams a few times. And then I won juvenile Pan Ams at the ABGJF. And then I placed at Worlds two or three times so i had done pretty well in the gi nothing to brag about or anything but i had done pretty well won some fight twin super fights in the gi but i just didn't have as much fun competing in the gi because for the most part i would at least if you go back and you watch some of my matches at purple belt when i competed adult for the most part i got stalled out a lot like um my last match in the gi was terrible. Don't watch it. <laughs> it was against Pedro Mourinho. He pretty much just chewed me up and spit me out. But in my defense, in my defense, not to make excuses, I hadn't trained gi since Purple Belt. So, and it had, was like a few years after Purple Belt. So, um, I hadn't trained gi at all. And I just decided to hop in with one of the best in the world. It didn't end out right. He just like passed my guard like three or four times. But um, back at Purple Belt, if you watch some of the matches when I was like actively training the gi, I, you know, I did well. Like I competed at the, I think it was 2019. Yeah, 2019 gi worlds. And I did well. I made it to the quarterfinals. I beat like four or five really tough dudes. I, I beat a Brazilian national champion. I beat uh, this, this guy, Scott Perry's Unity guy, really you know, tough in the IBGF circuit. You know, I beat some good guys. But then the match that I lost, I lost pretty much because I got stalled out in Lasso Guard and um, just couldn't pass. And the guy got a few advantages for almost sweeping me and then just rode that out till the sunset. And it was just kind of frustrating because I was like, man, I think I won four matches. I had five matches today and I did really well. and I didn't make $1. <laughs> and I spent a lot of money coming out here and I didn't have fun in my last match that I lost. Like a lot of times when I lose a Nogi match, I'm like, man, that was super cool. Even though I lost, it was fun and I had a great time. There, I didn't enjoy it too much. I got stuck in Lasso Guard. I couldn't move. I was a victim of a few bad resets and it was just frustrating. So I was like, you know, I'm just not having as much fun in the gi as I am Nogi. And Nogi, I made like, you know, quite a bit of money that year competing in different invitationals and super fights. And I was just like, you know, it makes sense for me just to make the transition to no gi because I haven't made really any money competing in the gi other than some fight to win super fights. And then I haven't really um, ever had too, too much success as far as I had a no gi. Like I had a lot more success in no gi than I did a gi. So I was like, you know what? I'm making more money. I'm having more success and I'm having more fun doing no gi. Let's just do that. So I've put a lot of my competition eggs back in that basket. I still s- train the gi every once in a while. Right now I'm not because I'm a little bit injured and I'm focused on recovering and rehabbing to get back in shape and ready to go for ADCC in September. But when I'm outside of camp, I love training gi. I've trained gi like two, three times a week. I enjoy the Gi. But if I'm in camp, which is mo- majority of the time, <laughs> I don't do Gi at all during camp. I just strictly no Gi. I'll teach Gi all the time. Like I teach three to four classes a week in Gi. But that, those are all like, I mostly teach beginner classes. And a lot of stuff is transferable other than like understanding grips and things. And I still competed at a high level the Gi, you know, I just not as high level in the no Gi. I just didn't enjoy it as much. So I decided to move on and focus solely on the no
0: So you brought up recovering rehab. What does that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to post a video here soon. Once oh. I get fully recovered of like the progress of what it's looked like, I injured my knee at the West coast trials. I've had a ton of injuries you know, throughout my jujitsu journey. I have actually hypermobile joints in my shoulder, my spine and my knees. So like everything is very loosey goosey and wiggles around a little bit too much. So I've had mm-hmm. like shoulder dislocations and like, like a herniated discs and stuff and even tears in my knee and such, but nothing mm-hmm. super serious where I've had had surgery. So I'm definitely thankful and blessed about that. But right now my knee literally goes like, you know, your knee's supposed to bend like this, right? Now my knee kind of bends like this. (laughs) So it's not (laughs) supposed to do that. And um, that's just because it's really unstable right now. So Um,
0: real quickly for the listener, can you describe the visualization of what you were doing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So basically like your knee is supposed to hinge like forward and backwards until it extends all the way. If I lock out my knee where it's completely straight, it moves side to side buckles inward and outward which is not good so i've had a lot of like knee tears on like this knee like i i'm pretty sure and i never got an mri on it when i did it but i was a lot younger i had a really bad knee injury on the inside of my knee and i'm pretty sure i either tore or very close tore my meniscus Definitely had a, like a, a tear in it. Just not. I don't know if it was full tear. That definitely healed somehow, and I think that it's now longer. The ligament is longer than what it's supposed to be because I've had MRIs done on it now, and there's there's no nothing wrong with my knee at all. But I think the ligament is now longer than what it's supposed to be because it like tore and then regrew at that length. So now there's just a lot of extra slack. In there, and I've had some LCL damage on this side as well, as well as some um, ACL damage on this side. So I've had a lot of damage in this knee, actually both knees, but this knee in particular. And so there's a lot of like wiggle room in there. And I've had some muscle damage in this knee too. When actually when I fought Pedro in the gi, there's something called your pes answering. It's like a group of muscle groups that attach onto your knees, like your calf, your hamstring, a few other different muscle groups that attach on your knee. And I like that attaches on your bone, and I like pop that off the bone. So I've had a lot of like basically stability issues with that knee. So right now it's just a little bit wonky. So I'm having to do a lot of rehab to restabilize it, which I normally have to do every time I, I re-injure it. So I, I had a partial tear on my LCL during the trials and that just led to it being unstable again. So now I'm having to work on doing like a lot of RDLs, a lot of hamstring work, a lot of balance work and, um, just causing a lot of blood flow to help everything heal in there and build that stability back up. Right now I'm doing um, a lot of like zercher deadlifts, which is like where you hold the bar on the crook of your elbow. And then you, uh, right. you basically do a squat where you actually bend your back and you're putting a lot of strain on, the, on your hamstrings. So mm. then coming back up and you don't do a lot of heavy weight where you could hurt your back, but it's enough to where it's a lot on your hamstrings and um, it helps really stabilize a lot. And I've been doing a ton of those. I've been doing a lot of RDLs, single leg RDLs. A lot of balance work and um, hamstring curls and stuff. So I've been really trying to build and a lot of bike, try to build a lot of muscle around my knee and help stabilize everything. Mm. A lot of rubber band work about to start swimming here, seeing them about the point where I can start to swim and it's not hurting too bad. So once I start swimming, that'll really help with the recovery mm. process.
0: Are you doing any of the ice bath, sauna, any of that kind of stuff or no?
1: Ice is great for bringing out inflammation. So let's kind of break down what an ice bath or ice does. Now, ice, what it does is it draws the blood out of the area because it makes it very cold. So the blood will move out of the area. So So then when you take the ice off, the blood comes back. So something Mm -hmm. like an ice bath, especially in your extremities, so like your hands, your Maybe your arms, your toes, and feet, and stuff like that. The blood literally comes out of them. That's why you see your hands white or your fingers white because you're cold. Comes out of it, and it comes to your core. So the reason it does that is because when your body drops below a certain temperature, like in the ice bath, it thinks that you're you just fell in some in the polar, you dropped fell in some water or something, and you're like okay, we need to warm him up, bring all the blood to his core. That's mm-hmm. why whenever you eat like a steak or something, you sit there and you're like oh. I'm like a hot, you got like the meat sweat, you're sleepy because all the blood's in your core to digest that food. Same thing. And when you're at the ice bath, you get all the blood come into your core and it tries to warm you up. So whenever you get out of the ice bath, all that blood's like, okay, we're good. We come back. So then it flushes all the inflammation and helps take all that inflammation away. It causes blood flow. So that's the benefit of ice bath. Now, I don't have a lot of inflammation on my knee right now. I haven't re-injured it. So it's been healing. So there's not really a lot of inflammation on it right now. So I have not been doing as much ice as what I would do as if it was hurting. Now, let's say I go back to training and tweak it and then, oh, it's hurting now. I'm limping on her to get swollen. Then I'll definitely do some ice, take anti-inflammatories and help bring that inflammation down and cause some blood flow. But blood flow also heals. So let's say that ligament that I hurt my LCL isn't fully healed yet. I'll definitely ride a lot on the bike to help speed up that recovery process because you're causing blood flow to help it heal. It's bringing a lot of blood cells there and just blood flow is really good for healing.
0: Was there ever a time that you considered quitting or wanted to quit?
1: No, I've uh, I've always been pretty good about sticking with it. I think that I have a pretty good no quitters mindset. I think we all do as as a family. I think that it's important to not just give up on things. A lot of the things that I've done, I've stuck with. Now, is uh, a guitar hanging up here on my wall. I haven't played guitar in a while. So that's something I've kind of stopped doing. But that's just because I don't have as much time to do it. And I've put a lot more effort into something like jujitsu, but a lot of things that I do, and you can see it as far as like my YouTube channel, I started YouTube and I've really put a lot of effort into it. And I plan to for a long time. It's not something that I just like started up and then, uh, stop doing it or do kind of halfway. And I post videos every week at the same time. And um, I'm pretty persistent about it and consistent with it. So I've been the same way with my jujitsu too. I know that if I get an injury, it's just working back through it and getting back into the swing of things. I'm not quitting jujitsu. I think that's something that I've now invested too much time, too much money, and too too many years into. And honestly, like, Put a lot of eggs in my in one basket, you know. Like, if I just stopped doing jiu jitsu right now and decided to just go to school, I'd be kind of behind because I'm about to turn 21. If I was going to go to school, I would have gone to school right out of high school. If I was going to go to like college, which I still plan to do whenever I stop competing, I plan to continue my college education. But I started doing a community college education when I was 18, right out of high school, and I decided to stop doing it after one semester because I wasn't able to put as much time or effort into like getting like really good grades and such. So I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, well. I need to compete a lot and school is taking time away from being able to travel and taking time away from training. And then also training is taking time away from school. So it's like, they're both negative for each other. So I'm like, okay, I need to like pick one or the other right now. jiu is making me money. So let's keep doing that. You know, jiu is a young man's sport. So you got to get it in while you can, you know, yeah. Yeah, especially the, you know for competing at least. Mm-hmm. So I plan to go back to school, but like for the most part, the things that I do, I try to do all out. So for like uh, competing wise, every time I get an injury, it's just, okay, get right back to it. We've trained for days like this. We know what to expect. We've had injuries before. Get right back to it and keep treading forward. What makes a great BJJ student? I think, number one, listening to your coach. I think that's something that's important. And that comes with like having no ego. So I know that not every coach is a world champion and not every coach is quality material. We talked about this earlier, but they're better than you. And that's, that's why you started at that gym. They're better than you are, and if they're not, then you need to find a coach. You know, you, need to, you can't be the best guy in the room if you're trying to get better jujitsu. You know, I mean, you can't get better, but not at the rate you can. Is if you know, there's better instructors around. And for the most part, there's people that are better than you. <laughs> like unless Gordon Ryan's listening or Andre Galvan, someone like that, there's people that are better than you, and you need to find a better coach if you're the best in the room. Now, I think that's really important: is listening to your coach and being humble. Right? You, they're better than you are. Listen to what they're saying, even if not everything they say is 100 accurate. It's a lot better than what you can come up with. So listen to your coach, do what they say. If they tell you, Hey man, do you start playing close guard? Play close guard until you're good at it. You know, if they say, Hey dude, you got to stop doing this. Stop doing that. Literally listen to your coach. That's going to take you a long ways. Don't make them say it twice. Listen to them the first time. That's going to save you a lot of trouble. On top of that, I think someone like hungry and wants to be consistent improves a lot quicker than someone that doesn't. So if you want to get good at jujitsu, make a schedule and follow that schedule. Don't let really anything stand in your way if you want to get better. If you want to get better quickly, you got to make sure that you're staying consistent. If you're going to train three times a week, make sure you're there three times a week. If you miss a class, then go to a different class, but make sure you get in three times a week and that's going to make you better at jujitsu. Consistency, listening to your coach, I think that things like that are really what makes someone better at jiu-jitsu and makes a good jiu-jitsu student. Of course, there's the other things that go into it, like studying and watching film and maybe doing exercise outside the gym. That all makes you better too, but your coach will probably tell you to do that as well. So just following those first two rules, listening to your coach and being consistent, those two things will take you really, really far. And that's things that I've really tried to do throughout my journey. And I try to make my students at least listen to me and follow those rules. I think those are really key to success. Anytime my professor tells me to do something, I'm always on it. Right after the Who's Number One Championships, where I fought Mika Caval, I fought Dante, and then I fought Jacob Couch. Like I, you know, I had to do a head okay performance. It wasn't great. You know, I did terrible against Mika. I didn't do great against Jacob. I had a good performance against Dante though. But there was a lot I needed to improve. So as soon as we got back, Rodrigo came up to me. He's like, William, I know you've had a ton of injury this year. I had knee injuries last year too. So it was really tough for me to work on my takedowns last year. And Rodrigo was like, I know you've had a ton of injuries this year, William. I know we've moved up a weight class. He said, let's move back down to 77. He said, I think that you're going to have a lot less injuries. You're going to be dealing with less strong guys and you're not going to get injured as much. And William, let's work your takedowns. He said, You used to play takedowns all the time. He goes, Now, like, you really can't take anyone down. I'm like, Yeah, I know. I get it. I haven't been working takedowns. You know, I moved down a weight class. I started working on a ton of takedowns and then, you know, it paid off. I won the trials. So I think that listening to your coach and it's something that I've really tried to do and it's paid off for me. So I think it could pay off for you know, whoever's listening.
0: Drilling and rolling in class. Should students be
1: rolling every class? Some form of rolling, yes. I agree with that. Now it's not always like going everything as hard as you can with every single roll and every single day and every single class. It, sometimes it's just doing specific training that's considered, you know, sparring. Starting in with someone on your back and then going till the escape and then starting on their back and going till the escape and just back and forth. That's much less exhausting and less wear and tear on your body than rolling and doing takedowns and crazy exchanges. But it's important for progress. You have to get some type of live training in order to get better at Jiu-Jitsu. If you don't have a form of live training, then you have no idea on how to deal with reaction. Reaction is the side of Jiu-Jitsu that's almost impossible for you to teach all the time. Now, I can teach you all the steps to a move, maybe a leg lock or, or a pass or something. But in order for you to actually get good at it, you have to understand their reaction. If you don't understand, okay, the guy's going to be pushing my head here, I have to be able to do this. Maybe even I tell you that, okay, the guy's going to push your head, do this with your head. But unless you actually get the reps in with like understanding, oh, what it feels like when they push your head and you understand the reaction, you're not going to get better. And that only comes through live training. So stuff like specific training, stuff like rolling is important to do every time. Now, the amount or the intensity, that can vary. So you can do one 10-minute round of specific training because you're tired. Just do one 10-minute round and then you're good and get a lot of drills, but then do a little bit of specific. That alone is going to make it so much better than just doing three hours worth of drills. You know, Mm -hmm. you got to get some form of live training in. That's Mm -hmm. the key to progress, not only drilling and working new position, but you have to get that feedback from your partner. And like asking feedback is important too. When you're done with the round, how'd this feel? What, you know, I've I've been trying to do this on you. Was it working? How are you stopping it? That's also important.
0: So then conversely, what makes a great teacher and coach?
1: I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like how to coach someone in competition or whatnot, understanding the individual and um, having experience. Experience is the most important part to coaching. I think that someone could have a PhD or some some sort and really, really, maybe a college professor, someone that teaches all the time. They go in to teach jujitsu. They're going to suck. Even if they're a black belt in jujitsu, but they never taught someone in jujitsu before, they're going to suck. You have to get experience with teaching people jujitsu, teaching people how to move their body, explaining people why you're telling them you to do something. Like I tell you to grab this way versus this way. If I just tell you that, you're like, okay, yeah, but uh, I don't really understand why he's saying this. Mm-hmm. It's important to explain why you're asking someone to do something. Oh, I grabbed this way because now look, my elbow's close to my side. Here, oh, look, you keep warm me. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. that I think that. That only comes from experience too, because the more often you teach someone, the more questions you're going to get asked, right? If first time I show you this move and I grab this way, I'm like, okay, grab this way. And I'm moving on. Someone goes, Hey,
0: why'd you grab that
1: way? I'm like, Oh, I grab that way. Cause my elbow is close. Now I know every time I teach the move, I teach it. I grab this way. Cause my elbow is close. That way I can already address questions before they're asked. And that comes from experience.
0: So I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up your parents and how influential they were to your up upbringing, your game, your development, everything. I know you were homeschooled. Your mother was your teacher, critical in that respect. And your father's a brown belt, correct? And he supported your jiu-jitsu journey till now, right?
1: Yes, sir. Yeah. My mom and dad have been my biggest fans since day one. And um, it's been a big blessing to have them always cheering in my corner and supporting me throughout the whole time. I'm um, I'm really thankful. Like even goes into like getting homeschooled. Like that was a support of my jujitsu journey because even though they were doing it for other reasons too, it was a big part of me being able to pursue something because I had extra time on my hands and wasn't stuck in classrooms, you know, things like that, like little things that they've done. Like even now, I'm still living with my parents and they've helped support my my living costs and stuff. And because, you know, you don't make much money in jujitsu yet, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm having to look to other routes to make money versus working at McDonald's and trying to train. You're not going to have as much time training. So they've been, a really big blessing in helping me out. And they, they, we're not super well off. You know, we don't have like a fancy home or fancy cars or anything. But, you know, they do their best to give me, I guess, the opportunities that I need to pursue a, a really great life and a life that I enjoy. And that's Jiu Jitsu.
0: So let's talk about your instructionals and fanatics. You've got uh, two instructionals there, fundamental grappling escapes and passing to side and back control. What can the, the consumer expect in either of those?
1: Yeah, yeah. So those are great. I think that the, both of them will add to your game massively. I use all the moves in there I've used. I'm not going to show something that I don't use. I'm a firm believer in making sure something works. And if you are not able to hit it in class constantly, and it's not something you use and confident in using competition, then it probably doesn't work, right? So I try to utilize all my, the moves that I teach, I try to use them in training. That way I can you know better understand them and better teach them. So all those moves that you see in the fundamental grappling escapes you can rewatch some of my matches from last year where I rolled with the big guys and got squished a lot. <laughs> I uh, didn't get submitted. I haven't gotten submitted since I fought John Combs in 2019. It's yeah, been a while. It's been about three, it's been about three years now since I got subbed. And I fought like a lot of really good guys. So yep. um, I would trust that, that uh, fundamental grappling escapes works because I've used it against a lot of really tough guys. For example, I fought Usamo Paul Harris last year. I <laughs> fought Hulk. Lucas, the Hulk, Barbosa twice. I fought Aaron Tex Johnson twice. I fought the Rotolo brothers, both of them. I fought Mika Galvão. I fought Dante Leon, Like a bunch of really, really good guys. Victor Hugo, Wagner. Just mind-blowing. Yeah, Yeah. a ton of really good guys. So like it's something that works, you know, even if I didn't get put in bad positions against all of them. Most of them I did. And I was able to get out without getting submitted or anything like that. So, So maybe check that out if you guys can. I think it will help a lot. It's a lot of fundamental stuff. So stuff that you should know as like a white belt. But also there's some really cool little uh, positions in there that are a little bit more advanced. Some some strange stuff that I've invented and seen from mm-hmm. training partners that I think guys will enjoy as higher ranks. And um, there's a lot of good details in there, even if you're um, maybe a black belt and you already know how to escape side control, already know how to escape back control. There's some good details in there that will help make it a lot easier that I use that was a really good one. The body lock pass into the back take is, uh, something that I recorded that one a while back. I think it was in 2020, I think it was a few years back. Yeah. I recorded that video. It was stuff that I used back then and I had fought a bunch of really tough guys then that was, you know, after I had won the trials. So all that, all those moves have been tested against good guys too. You know, those are great moves. I would probably ask them to take the instructional down and record a new one if I didn't believe that those moves work. So even though it's a little older of a video, I, I still use all those moves daily. Um, that, that's a body lock passing to the back instructional. So I, I show some body lock passing. I show a few other different little passes that I consider, like kind of like that smash or body lock style, like that pressure passing. And then I show some back takes off the guard pass. And um, it's some good stuff. It's stuff that I use. And I um, actually used the trials. I used it against uh, Johnson Tava. And if anyone knows Johnson Tava, he's really, really tough. Former mm-hmm. trials winner, uh, world champion, really, really good. Mm. from marcelo garcia multiple time black bill adcc veteran i um passed his guard took his back i uh, didn't show any finishes in that, that dvd but i finished him with a reverse triangle and um you know that stuff works so i would check it out
0: i'm so curious about your relationship with the reverse triangle that was one of the things i wanted to ask you about uh, your body type is really interesting you have these deceptively long legs but what's your relationship with the reverse triangle
1: i like to define them separately there's mm-hmm. the reverse triangle, which is when I'm on your back and I have a triangle on your and neck the behind you. Triangle. Okay. Yeah, inverted triangle where you're like like, yeah. like this, right, facing each other, yeah. like north south almost. I like them both; they're both great. Yeah. Yeah. I love the reverse triangle because it's just so dominant. If you get the reverse triangle, like no one's getting out, right? <laughs> Unless you make mm-hmm. a major mistake, it, no one's getting out. So I love the reverse triangle because it's pretty low risk. You know. I normally get it with a Kimura grip. So if I lose the position, I still have a Kimura, so I can like take the back again or I can arm arm. So I love the reverse triangle in that instance because it's really low risk. And then if you get it, it's like super, super effective. Now, inverted triangle, I love the inverted triangle. I've actually done an inverted triangle since I was like 12 years old or something. And You had um, to finish
0: an ADCC trials with that. I did.
1: I did. In my first match, I um, actually... I have a YouTube video about it, actually, I just posted. So I, I love that position. I actually broke it down. So I uh, I played a clip of it that I recorded during the match. And then I I showed actually how I do it properly and how I can finish it and how to finish it with smaller legs and stuff like that. So check it out. Really great finish. I mean, that's probably one of my tightest chokes, to be honest, mm. is the wow. uh, inverted triangle. It's just so so devastating if you do it properly. And again, it's low risk. If for some reason they slip their arm and head out, you have the Kimura grip still. You can change to a Kimura trap system. You can come on top to side control. You got options. So I mm-hmm. uh, I love the inverted triangle. I think that I said it, talked about it a little bit in my YouTube video, but I um, first saw Braulio Stima hit it on Andre Gavel at the ADCC. Mm-hmm. And that's, he, he submitted Andre with it. And I was like, whoa, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started using that move. And um, I've made, I've kind of taken my own spin off of it. And um, I don't set it up exactly how uh, his team did it, but I, um, I have my ways to setting it up and I enjoy that move a lot. It's a, it's a fun one to hit and It's not too common to see. I like doing submissions that not everyone does. Like I submitted Dante Leon with a, uh, a, like a knee crush or a calf slice, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's not a move that you see all the time, you know, uh, it's just not common. And I think that those are a little bit more exciting when you see that, for instance, you see like the, uh, average UFC fan knows what an arm bar is, knows what a, where a naked choke is, they know what a knockout is. Right. But then whenever you see someone do like a weird, crazy spinning back kick, it's like, Oh, that was crazy. That was so cool. Or you see someone do like a twister or something and they made it like, what the world? He like <laughs> spine locked him. You know, it's just cool. And it, uh, it's a little bit more exciting. So I like doing weird stuff. If I can make a, a little bit less common of a move effective, then I'm going to be uh, all about it.
0: So William, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're doing?
1: You can check me out on Instagram. I'm Tackett underscore Jiu on Instagram. I'll post pretty regularly on my story and my feed there. I like to keep all my updates on there for as far as like my YouTube. And you can also check me out on YouTube. William Tackett. I just have it under my full name. So you can check me out there. I have um jujitsu. Either role or technique breakdowns that I like to do. I love to do commentary on there. It makes it just a little bit more fun than watching a uh, basic role. I'll throw up some background music and commentate. You can have a little bit to learn from and uh, just watch a really fun role. It can even maybe be me versus someone in the gym or you know, maybe some of my training partners or even some of my competition footage. So I think you guys will enjoy that. I don't not on Facebook too much. That's um, something I've kind of not really put much time into, but I am on Facebook. If you want to hit me up there, I don't really accept too many more friends anymore. So sorry if I don't get back to you guys, but you can you can hit, you find me there as well. Yeah, uh, BJJ Fanatics. We talked about it earlier, but I have DVDs up there on BJJ Fanatics. I'm about to do a seminar tour with One Jiu-Jitsu Seminars. That's coming up. So I would definitely keep an eye out for going on TV's Instagram page. They'll post all the updates on there. You can go to One Jiu-Jitsu Seminars Instagram page. Post all the updates of where I'll be. So, if you want to attend some of the seminars and learn some cool jujitsu, you're um, more than welcome to be there. If um, I'm healthy by then, I would love to get rounds in with you guys. And if not, we can just like talk about some cool cool jujitsu. Maybe I help you out with something. So, you can check me out there. And then, Brazilian Fight Factory, I'm always in the gym pretty much every class. The only classes I'm not there is like, uh, like maybe some of the beginner classes that I don't teach. But for the most part, I'm always there, even if I'm not training. So, I would love to see you guys. You can chat and maybe talk about some moves or something, come try a class. It's a lot of fun. Even if you're not from Texas, it's well worth your uh, time coming down and spending at the Fight Factory. We have a lot of people that uh, just come in and train, make, make kind of a, a yearly vacation out of it, come train with us in Austin. Because Austin is just a really cool place if you've never been. Great weather, good food, cool activities to do, and great jujitsu. So come check us out.
0: All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much again. I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. Please give us a thumbs up on all the socials and share it with a friend. Much appreciated. And we will see you guys next time. William, I can't thank you enough for making the time. It's
1: just a tremendous honor. Thank you so much, man. Th- thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. It's an honor. Thank you.